Hello and welcome to another episode of The Code of Career with me, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is Kieran Cornwall. Kieran is a fellow career changer who spent well over a decade in the technology industry and is now spending his time helping to educate the next generation of the UK's technologists. Kieran is the technical director of Sparta Global, which is an organisation that trains up and places software engineers with companies across the UK. Kieran joins me today to discuss his approach to learning and what he would do if he was learning to code again, as well as Sparta's approach as well, which obviously is quite similar. This is a great episode if you're trying to decide whether tech is for you, uh, or even if you've just started learning to code but you want a bit of direction. Uh, also as well, if you're a couple of years into your career and thinking, hmm, what technical skills, like what are the foundational skills that I should be brushing up on to be an amazing technical professional myself? Whilst I'm currently foregoing a sponsor, I'd really appreciate if people support via the Patreon if they can afford it, uh, and joining the Discord as well is a great way to stay in touch with me. You can find links to both of those in the description, but without further ado, grab a coffee, push those commits, and enjoy the show. Hey, Kieran, thanks much for joining me. How are you doing? Hi, Cameron. Thank you for having me. I'm doing really well. Thank you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, for people that maybe aren't familiar with you and and your background, uh, do you want to give us a quick summary about who you are, what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yes, so my name is Kieran. It feels like an elevator, like an elevator pitching an interview already. I'm already nervous. Uh, It's the imposter syndrome kicking in already. Um, Yeah, so my name is Kieran Cornwall. I'm the technical director at Sparta Global. And a little bit about my background, I've kind of been lucky. I've been in the industry for around 20 years now, and I actually started off, uh, and I know it's obviously a technology podcast, but I started off in actually quite administerial jobs in the very early stages, uh, back in the early 2000s, which is quite scary to say that now. Um, um, I actually started really just basic admin, and I I think at one point I did have a brilliant job that was shredding paper for around two years, which there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, But as as I progressed, I I kind of uh, flowed into quality assurance at a time, moved into various different jobs, and then um, had this big tech accelerator uh, in my career when moving to ITV um, as a quality assurance manager. And I guess that's going to be the interesting point, possibly for a bit later, is kind of uh, what was the uh, lightning bolt that kind of made me shift from what was this uh, I felt was a positive progressing career and then felt, OK, tech is the way to go and the only way to go. So what am I doing right now uh, within Sparta Global? I'm, I'm kind of responsible for uh, everything really across the entire software delivery lifecycle for our company. Uh, and we deliver training. Uh, for early careers individuals to work with our clients. Um, so uh, despite coming in and the, the quality assurance background has been really valuable for me to you know, kind of build that quality into educational curriculum, which is very exciting for me now. Mm. And the, mo- the model you guys operate is very interesting and uh, definitely touching that later in the podcast because I'm sure mm. our listeners will be curious to hear more and we'll obviously talk about the broadcast side of things as well because my, my, my first proper job in programming as well was broadcasting. Um, really and we will uh, be yeah, digging into a, that it's such a cool industry i i, I love it and uh, yeah it's great great fun um and there's a lot of innovation um going on there shout out to uh to the uh, other alumni from uh, m2a media uh hope you're all well because i know a couple of you listen um so <laughs> before we uh, go forward anymore um i have some quick fire questions uh as well just so the audience can get to know you a bit better that way as well um do you mind if i do you mind for far away no pressure please do please <laughs> yeah. do the first one's big one. What was your first ever computer? Uh, Commodore Amiga 64. 
Oh, very nice. That's a legendary yeah. computer. Yeah, unless we're talking about games consoles, then it was the Atari 2600 or what is it, the ZX Spectrum. There have been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the Commodore 64 in particular is iconic. Did you have any, um, uh, who, who was that? It was uh, Sam, um, Sam Cox, who I worked with in my recruiter days, who came on this podcast um, a few months ago now. He was saying he had the uh, Neighbours video game um, for uh, Commodore 64 and that was his favourite game sort of growing up as a kid. Did you have any anything similar? <laughs> I'm really embarrassed that I can't actually remember a single game from that period. Uh, I, I, I'm really quite ashamed of myself, but uh, there are very, many fond memories. I just miss floppy disks, so they don't mean anything to anyone anymore. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to admit it a little bit from my side, but I've actually never used a floppy disk. I've seen one, and I know, I know, what, I, I know what the save icon is, but I've, yeah, I was a little bit. I've joked about this on the podcast before. I'm from that weird. I was born in '95, and I'm from that weird era of. Uh, I was a young teenager when everyone just decided that like the best way to transfer media was just like on a CD-ROM that was like rewritable, um, and just like carry around, like burn your homework onto a CD and give it to the teacher. It, it, it was a weird, yeah, weird well, this time. Is, this is actually a really interesting point. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pleased you actually said about your age, actually, because I'm enjoying the mind. I'm from 82, so I'm not ashamed to say I'm nearing 40. But I, I came from an even weirder period, so there was no computers when I was a kid. It was, it was only when I reached about, I don't know, 14 maybe, um, and it was floppy disk. But I do remember the first CD. It was the Britannica 95. So just as you were born, I was sticking a CD into a machine. And my entire world was around this digitized compact disc of uh, encyclopedia that I just kept, obviously, wanted to find all the videos, hence why YouTube's so successful now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny to think about how, um, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a moot point, but how, how innovative it seemed to be able to pack so much data onto something so thin compared to, uh, you know, uh, a larger you know, floppy disk, or, or even if we're talking in the case of, like, uh, video media, a VHS cassette, or something like that, and then nowadays it just seems so archaic. It's really mad to think about. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is totally backfiring on the quick fire questions because we are going down the uh, going down the proverbial rabbit hole. However, I, I've spoken to so many developers from that era, and it's quite interesting. Right? As you rightly say, you've got a very limited amount of things to work with. The CPU was relatively small, RAM was negligent. Um, but it pushed the envelope for developers better. You have to be really innovative about how you actually achieve things. I actually think we're getting quite lazy now. So I yeah. just we'll just throw some extra tin at it. It's fine. Let's spin up another cloud server. Don't worry about it. But you didn't have that option back then. Mm. So it's you know we're not gonna, I'm not going to start picking holes in modern delivery. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> well, efficiency is definitely less of a concern than it was. I mean, just look at the Millennium Bug for a uh, classic example of that. And uh, yeah, that's an interesting read if people haven't heard much about that. Um, but it, uh, it was a legitimate concern at the time. Like, I mean, obviously, we know my age uh, now. I've revealed it. Uh, so I wasn't old enough to be worried. But I can see why people were worried uh, after reading about it. Yeah, I was. I was. I, I don't think I was actually working in quality assurance at that point. I was only 18. But yeah, it was a huge thing. That zero day, everyone started to panic. Planes falling out of the sky, proper conspiracy theory craziness. And then everything was fine. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, often the way with tech. It'll be all right on a night. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so speaking of tech, um, what, what, what is your favorite tech city in the world? Because you, you mentioned before the pod that you're, you're quite, quite a well-traveled guy. Well, yeah. Uh, well, oh, that's, a, that's totally sideswiped me. Um, the most tech relevant, it has to be Tokyo. Mm. Have, you, have you been? Yeah, luckily. Oh, for nice. a very, uh, it was a short, a short trip. But um, 
we've always got this wonderful, you know, technological view of, of Tokyo and Japan, and it is just incredible neon lights and just crazy inventions everywhere. It's outstanding. But it's quite interesting when I started to meet people that have come from Europe and, and the UK that went to work in Japan, and actually the working practices were quite archaic. Things were still being faxed, uh, and you know they're actually not quite. So I was quite taken aback that this, you know, arguably hardware leading nation wasn't quite as far ahead as some of the other areas. So I was, yeah, but I would say Tokyo, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing, and I would love to get a. If there's any developers from Japan uh, who who listen in, please please message me because I would love to get a developer from Japan on the podcast because I've heard the same thing about how uh, it's a real mixture of really old style practices, and a lot of people carry uh, some kind of stamp around, and it's almost like a seal that you would have uh, used back in the day uh, in, in in Britain. But uh, a lot of their official documents, you have a personalized stamp that you have to stamp. It's quite interesting. I, I know the exact guy to bring on this podcast. Oh really? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we'll we'll organise that afterwards. No problem. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds uh, that sounds great. And uh, when when you're getting uh, down to some code, um, I, don't, I don't know how much you're doing like big picture stuff these days compared to how hands on you are. But when you are coding, um, what music do you like to listen to? Oh well, this is where it's going to get embarrassing. Uh, it, it's a it's a range. Uh, depending on what I'm coding, it can be anything from movie soundtracks. So uh, massive Marvel nerd. Uh, and I just like listening to the, the soundtracks as they're going. I'm feeling heroic while you're, you know, developing away and, you know, trying to make the world a better place by deleting one line of code at a time. Uh, and, and sometimes actually classical music, just to get lost a little bit. Um, I did I did go for a period of having rock music and that wasn't particularly uh, helpful, actually. But yeah, classical or, or soundtracks, I think probably best. Yeah, I'm similar, particularly when I'm trying to get in really deep focus um, or like uh, instrumental, like hip hop beats and that kind of thing. Just anything without too many lyrics. I do like rock music as well, but not always the best code too, especially when it's really upbeat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, your code comments change quite vigorously as you're listening to various rock music. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I have to say sometimes I have gotten very deep focused by just um, plugging in noise cancelling, getting Ramstein on and just going for it. But uh, yeah, that's a, different, <laughs> that's a different kind of mode that produces some angry code. Uh, <laughs> um, what, what about the time of day for you? Would you say early bird or night owl? Early bird. How, how early? Uh, I am, yeah, six o'clock in the morning most days, getting started with a day. Um, and, and yeah, I'm. by the time it gets to nine o'clock, I'm, I'm pretty much passing out. <laughs> it's good going, being up and working that early. I was up at 5.30 this morning, I think. And I'm, yeah, I'm still feeling a bit off. I had to have an energy drink when I woke up and I'm still not, <laughs> still not quite with it. Uh, coffee is my mother's milk. Without <laughs> it, the day does not exist, so... Yeah, that, it, it's an interesting one, though, because uh, the trend I, I've noticed on the podcast is most devs tend to be night owls. So for, for a technical person, um, you're, so the two main groups people I have on here are usually either technical recruiters or devs themselves. Um, so it's interesting that you're actually more in common with recruiters because they tend to be the early birds. Um, so that's quite an interesting one. That's going to feed well into the rest of this talk, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, what I mean, we we talked about how um, being an engineer wasn't your first uh, job, um, but but before that, um, like I'm talking back, like primary school days. What job did you want when when you were going to be an adult? That's a really good question because it was weird back then, as you kind of you had all of these the same jobs that you would expect to hear about doctors lawyers um and i don't think that's actually changed a great deal um but i had such an obsession with gaming i think in my head 
I, I wanted to be a games developer at some point. There was, I had a, the dream of every thing. I wanted to be a marine biologist at one point. Um, and uh, obviously a paleontologist because Jurassic Park was in my era. So, <laughs> you know, I just wanted to go dust bones for a little while. Um, but yeah, I, 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 in primary school, not so much. I think in secondary school, actually, I was completely and utterly lost if I'm honest, I, I don't think that there was a great deal of direction. I didn't feel like there was a great deal of help back then. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And interestingly enough, careers advice, not that I'm slamming historic education, wasn't particularly great. Um, so yeah, it was a weird, it was a weird one. So, so what did I want to do and be? I don't know. I, I literally, I'm, I'm unashamed to say, actually, I kind of just fell into jobs. I just started working. Um, and interestingly enough, in terms of education, um, I only left with my GCSEs. I actually started my A-levels back then and just, you know, just realised it wasn't for me. Um, it, it wasn't what I wanted or needed at that time, um, which thankfully, I think, has worked out for the better, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's definitely a normal kind of thing to like really just, I, I mean, I, I left university and just fell into technical recruitment. Like, it turns out I quite liked it, especially once I went internal. I really enjoyed that. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, I, I, I'm always amazed, but also a bit suspicious of people that uh, seem to have immediately found their calling when they're sort of 18 and uh, slot into a job that they've always wanted to do. So yeah, it's a familiar feeling, particularly for all the listeners of this pod that are career changes, um, which is a, a sizable proportion. Um, and this leads quite well into my next question, which isn't so much a quick fire one anymore, so feel free to elaborate. <laughs> um, we talked about how you went, uh, your, your first jobs were in admin, and you moved over to QA and then uh, engineering. Can, can you tell me more about that journey? What, how did you, what was your strategy to break into tech as someone who maybe didn't have like, a comp side background? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. And, and you know what, I'll just accelerate straight through to when that happened. So I was, I was, head of test test manager in various areas and when i went to i started working at itv and i i came in as a senior test lead there um and i'm quite happy to so i'm sure it's okay to shout out people absolutely um, yeah but uh there was an individual that I worked, so i was working with an agile scrum team first time properly that i ever worked with in an engineering scrum team that were using ci cd practices so everything was automated they were progressing in that space very very quickly and it was relatively new to me. And I came from a very traditional test background. So it's like, what well, a test phase is at the end, which is obviously stupid, right? You want to get it as early as possible. Um, and it was an incredible guy, two guys, actually. One was Nathaniel Rittmeyer, um, who kind of ripped the rug from under my feet, <laughs> literally. And arguably, it was like pushing me down the stairs, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I, I felt I was progressing in my career. I'd, I had various certifications under my belt, under it was our ISTQB, I had test management. So I thought I was prepared for the world. And then we were, they were going through a CD cycle, so they were quite progressive. There was a lot of unit tests, a lot of integration tests. And I'm sitting there trying to weld on this this huge heavy test document that was about 40 pages in size to which nat didn't want anything to do with so he kind of sat me down and uh rightly or wrongly kind of sat there i'm going to base every question on the fact that you're a smart person i was like okay i don't know let, let's deal with that and then he's just to be clear he's a wonderful person <laughs> and uh so he was saying why do you want to create this test document all the time when our documentation's written in the code and all of our unit tests are running and we get reports every day when we run it i was like oh yeah okay maybe i don't um and we went through this little cycle and he kept asking me questions and he said well what do you want to do i said well i don't want to 
do my job anymore clearly you kind of put me off that so i actually went away that evening i lost the night's sleep it was really i mean actually hit me to the core um and it was that moment i i, I don't think nat was expecting this and i came in the next day cup in hand i said what, what do i do and he, i think he was slightly taken aback as well because he's not used to you know someone just caving in probably coming back with arguments that he was looking forward to batting back um and actually, that was the Kickstarter for me. And I sat down with Nat. And we actually came up with an early curriculum at that time for foundational skills to get someone into test automation. So he started architecting these things, and I was walking through it with him. We tried to implement it across the team. Um, and I just followed through from there. And then I realized that it was a passion and a hobby that I, I'd missed all this time. And I was, still, I think, 27 at the time, so really late, arguably, to the whole journey and and then i i kind of made a this conscious decision after that kind of gave me this guidance and i started learning online that right that's it i'm committing to this and i'm changing so it was every night for i reckon about two years on my own failing every day um anything i could find online anything i could consume and, and it kind of progressed from there um and i would say it was a two to three year journey definitely uh, but it really, it was quite shocking actually to hear it at the time. I feared for my job. I actually, that, that's what it was. It was the, I, I was concerned about being obsolete that really drove me. It's a powerful driver. And um, sometimes anything worth doing is, is worth that hard. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the exact quote from, uh, from Moneyball. Um, he said, uh, you know, he said, it's not easy. And then uh, Brad Pitt replies and says, well, nothing, nothing worth doing is. And, you know, it's, it's a hard slog to, to learn these skills. But, I mean, it's certainly in your case, it's really paid off, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. I'm, I'm still double-checking every now and then. But, no, I'm lucky enough to now be working in the industry to kind of that three- to five-year journey. I'm working with a load of individuals now where we're trying to distill that into training courses for people to help them get that accelerator. I don't want, actually, I don't want anyone to go through that. I don't want, and I think we're in this very weird stage now of, and you know, this podcast is fantastic for people hearing because it's the truth that no one tells you. That's the thing that's always resonating in my mind. You know, is that they don't kind of don't want to tell you, and all of a sudden you get into this career and it's the surprise that you know it's not just you know one coding language you need to know; it's the fifty-eight other things that support that coding language. So you've covered the coding language, but then all of a sudden Pandora's tech box opens and mm. you're you're sitting there looking at all of the RAF and MV flying out of it, thinking, well, which one do I pick first, right? <laughs> um, so this is where now like, we're trying to distill and it's really important to validate those foundations before you step through. I, I, I went, it was literally like a helter skelter for me. I started in the middle and then went down to the bottom and then went back to the top. And it was over time that that foundation built into a solidified mm. knowledge. I'm not sure how you found it. I mean, I'm interested in you as well, to kind of reverse moment here that going yeah. from tech, tech recruitment to, uh, it'd be nice to, you know, how do you feel about where you kicked off? So, I mean, it was interesting for me because I, I found candidates I dealt with invariably extremely nice people. And uh, I had a couple of negative experiences with the culture of agency recruitment in particular. I thought, oh, God, you know, it'd be so much nicer to work with these people. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just got, I would get chatting with them and, um, 
probably to my manager's annoyance because I wasn't trying to sell them a job. Um, more just like asking them about what they were working on and like, uh, you know, just little conversations. Like when I, when I asked the candidate, oh, do you know Angular? And, and, and he said, oh, do you mean Angular JS or, or uh, Angular 2 Plus? And I was like, oh, well, what's the difference? You know, little things like that and getting into, the, um, getting into conversation. And then eventually someone told me free code camp. And then <laughs> that was kind of it from there. I, I found basically all the free resources I could. And um, yeah, it's exactly like you're saying. I think I, I definitely fell into the trap of getting very, very deep into JavaScript, but not uh, any of the supporting stuff. So it's almost like I had a... Um, I had a car and I don't want to say a Ferrari engine, maybe like a good reliable VW engine um, of JavaScript. Um, but the wheels like Git wasn't there. <laughs> like I used to copy and yeah. paste my code directly from my IDE onto GitHub, like control C, control V, and then hit save because I genuinely thought that's how people did it. Like uh, there are so many of the, we're talking about the foundations and the support and the ecosystem. And I really relate to your Pandora's box, uh, you know, analogy of, of what happens when suddenly there's all these other variables that you can't control, no pun intended. Um, uh, as soon as you step out <laughs> of that environment of, uh, of, of just learning that one thing. And that's why people should get out of the tutorial hamster wheel as soon as possible, because if you're just on, you know, it's not like free code comes great if you if you just want to learn JavaScript. Um, and it's great if you can like solve all the like questions over and over again. But then as soon as you step out of that friendly little environment and then you're like, right, I've got to deploy something. How does this work? Like, oh, I've got to start, I've got to do a rebase and with Git. Like you're not learning that if you're just learning JavaScript. Like you have to have to learn um, the, the support and that is a major challenge. And that's definitely something I found really hard and probably why I took a little while to like, I think it took me a good 18 months from writing the first line of code to getting the first job simply because of the supporting acts, so to speak, um, weren't there compared to the rest of my code. And I love the fact that we're both here talking about time as well. There, this is mm. a huge expectation that, hey, I finished this course, therefore I am. Yeah. <laughs> I am the great next race. It's years upon years of work to, to get to a stage where even it will just starts to sink in correctly. And I, I love, you know, I'm obsessed with metaphors and analogies and stories, but, you know, what we should be looking at here is that it's, it's a trade that is built. I think a lot of the arguably manual trades, things like carpentry, being an electrician, being a plumber, you can, they've got this idea of skills and tools. And what we kind of, let's just say carpentry as an example, I've attempted to take up carpentry recently. Mm. Now, Obviously, I did it all wrong first because I, I went off and bought all of the tools that I thought I needed and then bought wood with no idea what I was going to do with it. So I had all of the tools and I started to look at this in terms of what well, is kind of like coding frameworks. You know, I've got my toolkit, I've got React, I've got Redux, I've got all of this wonderful things that can do amazing stuff. And then there's me who's just hacked the end off a bit of wood that I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And it's really, really important that in the fact that you look at the way that trades taught, you have to spend time with someone more senior, understand how they've experienced it, and they know things aren't perfect and there's improvements. So it's about building that skill set over time. You know, your toolbox of tools, you can have the most expensive tool set in the world. You know, uh, but if you have no idea what the difference is between a bit of redwood pine to something else, then all you're going to do is you know accidentally set fire to balsa wood uh, <laughs> with your saw which happened <laughs> <laughs> well you know i mean you're a brave man for even attempting carpentry that's something that'd be well out of my comfort zone 
Um, coding has helped me with DIY a little bit. I've gone from completely useless to only a bit useless. So uh, that, that that's good. I'm still beyond, basically can put up a shelf and that's about it. Um, but, that's still a skill. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it helps. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I tried to I tried to fix a bin the other day. And, I mean, I won't go into details. Um, I, bro- <laughs> I, bro- I broke the bin. Um, and, and, you know, it, it just, it was a complete disaster trying to fix it, but I've definitely improved a little bit. Thanks to coding. I think it's something about the, the logical thinking and the process, um, the framework you get in, in your mind, it, it helps with everyday tasks a little bit. Like, um, it's helped me with problem solving in, in general life. And yeah. I find I get a bit less stressed because I'm able to uh, break things down into smaller problems. I still get stressed, obviously I'm human, but it definitely mm. helps. Yeah, I, I totally vouch for that. And it is really interesting in the, it's kind of, t- it's twofold. I think if you find yourself a good pro- problem solver in the first place, it's only when you kind of get stuck into the paradigms of coding that you kind of learn to solve problems in a different way, because you kind of, you know, you, you're not stuck in terms of coding, but you have certain aspects you have to fit within. You've got control statements, you've got loops, you've got certain things that work more efficiently so you start to bring that into your personal life i don't know about you it drives my wife nuts she drives absolutely crazy so if i'm making breakfast now i lay everything out in what would be a kind of trajectory of code you know i have to get the milk cereal bowl here and it's all in order and if someone comes and breaks that order you get really angry about it which is you know no different than putting up a you know a pull request and someone just going well i, I don't think that's the right way of doing it <laughs> it's like but i like the bowl being there <laughs> um, so it's a really it's an interesting one but you're absolutely right i think you get a lot of people that kind of misconstrue the the skills in coding it's actually got i one of the things that we do in, in our training course all the time is kind of go well look, i'm going to give you a problem and if you write a line of code before you've discussed the problem i will delete it <laughs> <laughs> because if you have no idea what you're trying to solve what are you writing and it's a very common practice. We go, yep, no problem. I'll fix that. Take a ticket off the board, move it over on Jira, or hopefully when we're back together again, a post-it note. And away you go. And you just begin. So it's kind of natural when you first start coding. And then when you get to more experienced coders, they're going to sit around for like three hours just thinking, why am I doing this in the first place? Yeah. It's definitely the better you are at coding, the less code you write is, is a paradox. It, do you know what? Actually, I have one extra story on that front. Uh, <laughs> it was... Probably one of the most amazing, um, you know, end of scrum moments I've ever seen when they come to produce their work. And a developer had been working in this place for around six months. No one knew what he was doing. No one. And he just turned up and put up a code base. And he just went, I've been here for six months and I haven't written a line of code. And everyone was kind of looking at each other. Going, That's not the best place to be saying that. <laughs> that was kind of, and it, but he went, I've deleted nearly 1200 lines of code and everything still works. And he walked and he walked off. And we all just said, that is possibly the most legendary thing I've ever seen. I mean, fair, fair play, fair play, especially if you're still in probation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an important thing, right? He's actually spent so much time understanding the problem space and realizing there was just so much superfluous code there that honestly wasn't being used. He reduced the code base by a fair margin. And the value proposition of that for readability and capability moving forward was unreal. Um, I just, I, I've still not had that drop the mic moment. I'm just still really angry about that. <laughs> it's pretty cool to be able to do that. And I think something, um, something people don't consider as well when they're learning is, uh, you know, they're always going to be doing greenfield things. 
unfortunately, in the real world, you're often looking at legacy code that's been touched in five or six years, and uh, you're trying to dissect it. And like, I, I was looking at something in a in a job that I've now just left, um, and it, the code hadn't been touched in far, in in a good sort of five years, and just trying to unpick how everything worked. And uh, I'm sure the guy who wrote it um, was was very smart because I looked it up on LinkedIn afterwards, and <laughs> turns out he's, he's working at a fan company, so he's obviously very good at what he does. Um, uh, but it was, uh, you know, the way it was written was just in quite a confusing way and, uh, just untangling it. And it wasn't even that confusing, like in the grand scheme of things, untangling it was a job in of itself. If it had been written very badly, it would have been even worse. And I think that's a hard one to learn. Um, but it's definitely good to get out of the comfort zone and, and maybe, maybe, uh, I didn't do this personally, but maybe looking at big open source projects and, reviewing the code and looking at how the code works and trying to dissect it would be quite a good way of learning. I, I don't know. Do you think there's any good way to prepare for that? Um, it's a tough question. Not really, especially when you're starting out. I think you, you haven't really got that foundation of what is good. Um, and you will, you'll always hear the term best practice. That really frustrates me. Because who gets to say it's best? There's a lot of good... It's a lot of good things going on. I just learn from the good and, and the wise. Anyone who says that they've got the answer to anything from a coding perspective, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by. Fair play to you if that's true. Um, but actually kind of scrambling your way around. I like your idea of open source coding, actually. I think even even if it's an addition or a deletion of one line, you've added to an open source code base. And that or you... even just documentation. My first ever open source con- contribution was uh, fixing a spelling mistake in documentation. That's uh, you know, and I still I haven't achieved that yet. I, I'm going to go <laughs> commit after this podcast and maybe even come back and talk about uh, open source journeys. But yeah, it's it's a tough one to answer. It, you've just got to get in there and start making mistakes. But I think other, open source other people's code base is definitely the way to go. But I guess the problem you rightly pointed out is that if it's well written, then great. Uh, don't start in your early, you know, early tech journey in tackling big, horrible behemoths because you'll just get lost. Yeah, don't try and repair how React works under the hood because you're just gonna you're gonna have a bad time. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. Going back to the frameworks, right, and just keeping yeah. focus on, on you know on the individuals listening here. You, you're gonna feel, and you, you mentioned Code Camp, you, you always feel the pressure. You're gonna see things out there in job adverts. You see React all the time. You see Angular, as you rightly said. In Java, there'll be a load of packages, Spring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're always kind of pushing yourself to progress, especially when you're starting out. I need to go learn this. And it's actually quite an interesting, um, it's a bit of a nemesis to itself because a lot of people go learn the frameworks, but then as soon as things start going wrong, if you're not 100% clear what a list or an array is, you really can't dig down into the basis of what's going on. So when you kick out, you kick off, I should say, your learning journey, drive it all the way down to the lowest possible level. And you mentioned Git at the start. I would go even further to say, you know, start with Linux. Go really go learn what Linux is and why it's there. Um, go learn what an IP address is and how you start messing around with subnets on, on a Linux box. Buy yourself a Raspberry Pi and, and start up a project with a bit of hardware because these are the things that build that core foundation and understanding of, well, my program has to go somewhere. You can develop the most amazing thing in the world on, on your laptop and as you rightly said, hit save. No one's ever going to consume that. You can get it up to Git, but does it operate on Linux and does it operate on Windows? And how do you understand those things coming together? Um, so really try and get down to the lowest possible level and don't be afraid of getting lost. I think it's the key bit. Follow that rabbit hole and eventually you'll work it out. I can give you, for me, SSH, uh, SSH keys. That was my first most embarrassing three-day failure early on in my tech. <laughs> it took journey. me a while as well. 
I got the keys the wrong way around. I spent three days getting angry at myself because I was sending the public key to the wrong place. <laughs> and I just I sat down in front of a Linux admin, a very experienced Linux admin, and he got my diagram and just turned it upside down. I was like, oh, God, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Those things live with you. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. But at least, you know, at least you're able to fix it after only three days. And um, I, I agree with you. I think it's an interesting one because we've never really talked about on the podcast. We've often talked about like programming language you should learn first and that kind of thing. And I do think there's definitely something to be said, like like you say, for going in Linux, like learning about subnets and um, every, everything like that. And, you know, buying Raspberry Pi, they're quite cheap and you can have a lot of fun with them. You can, you can learn some really cool things. Uh, and, uh, you know, the documentation is out there. So um, just try and almost frame it like, uh, you know, to anyone listening, uh, try and imagine, you know, when you were a kid uh, about how you just mess about with stuff and experiment um, with, with, with things. Like try and take that same mentality because you're not going to delete the whole of GitHub, which is what I was paranoid I would do like when I first started messing out with, uh, messing yeah. out with Git. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my, I, I did. I was also you almost kind of guessed my question in advance. I was going to say, what would you say to someone with no technology who's 18 um, maybe and, and leaving leaving school and, and wants to get into tech? I mean, obviously they can learn that way. Um, mm. uh, I, I was always going to say as well, they could join Sparta Global uh, as yeah. well. But I guess in the um, it's a kind of a two-stranded answer. If someone came to you in that position and then one in a hypothetical world where Sparta didn't exist, um, what would you advise? And then secondly, what can they learn from Swarta and what's the benefits of joining your program? <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's let's go all the way back to it. So when you're, you're, you're 18, I, I would definitely go down the route of, um, even if you find an old PC, right? work out how you're going to wipe, wipe windows from it. Not that I'm anti-windows. I, I have a little bit, but we'll just leave that hanging. Um, and, and try and put a Linux instance on whatever that may be predominantly ubuntu right just keep it safe and easy and put the gui on there to start with um, yeah, don't don't start with gen 2 <laughs> no oh, no or centos either way it's, it's that's not the best way to start you get to the security first bit later do whatever do whatever but i, I do I think, enjoy that meme on online forums where it was a big thing like 10 years ago where um if someone had like a basic compute problem just either tell them to delete system 32 or install Linux <laughs> <Gen 2. laughs> Safety first, safety first. Yeah. <laughs> it's the crash helmet moment. Um, yeah, I think going back to 18, I, I would honestly say that starting out, if you had a Raspberry Pi or whatever you can draw in, is create a server at home and you need to, and I've got, there's some caveats to this, but you need to create that server and generate a very basic website that you can access from your home i.e. externally through your router. So that's the challenge. And, and and the reason being is that there's quite a few real core concepts you have to learn at this point. So first of all, what is a server and why bother? What kind of packages do you need on there? And then it's about understanding, exposing ports and IPs to your router. Now, be sl the caveat with this is that whatever you do, don't open your router wholesomely. Be careful about what guides you read, right? You only want to open port 80 or 443 on your router and expose it. How do you actually expose traffic to your home, right? To then actually route that to your local IP instance of your server and then expose your web page. Now, if you've achieved that, you are 60 to 70% away of the journey about understanding how the rest of the world works. I think if you've achieved that, and then you can play around with your HTML, CSS and JavaScript to your heart's content, but you can show your friends, you can access it externally. Um, and you've got this different, you've got this different mindset now and way of working. So that that would I think anyone starting out don't rush into the language, 
you know, understand how the world is underpinned by servers, IP addresses, subnets, just within your own little ecosystem, within your LAN, your local area network. If you achieve that, everything else becomes easier. And I was going to say, do you know, do you know what, why I think that is such amazing advice and something I wish someone had told me? Um, purely from a monetary and career perspective, <laughs> DevOps is one of the best ways to make some cold, hard cash right now. And I don't see that going away. And that is some of the best skill set you can have to build a great career in DevOps. Um, so it, that's very, uh, it's a very, very good idea to have those foundations. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start unpicking the DevOps thing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm much more obsessed about just, we all know, we have to say DevOps, we all say it. You, yeah. you're, you're arguably what's, what you say is like a platform engineer. Really yeah. kind of, you're architect. So I'm, I'm really pedantic about these things, um, to my detriment more often than not, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It is an absolute fundamental skill. It's been around for a long time. Right? Sysadmins, right? We're pretty mm. much, you know, arguably. Um, what, before the, that, the IT guy. Then it became yeah, a sysadmin, yeah. then it became DevOps. Yeah, well, if you read the Phoenix Project, it's Brett. Everyone has a Brett. <laughs> Just this, this one guy who knows everything that if you lose him, you know, the world crumbles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is another book everyone should read, actually. get or Everyone should get through the Phoenix Project at some mm. point. But, yeah, go back, build that server, and you're right, DevOps uh, as a, future career i think in an aws summit i mean globally within the next five years you're looking at potentially anywhere between two hundred and fifty thousand and five hundred thousand people in terms of skill set short for the future and the growth of tech so no better space to be uh, absolutely and um for anyone that wants to hear more on that uh, as well um maybe speaking to uh, where I speak to someone who, who's been through that exact position recently, uh, Ethan Sumner, who I think was episode 10 or 11 on here. Um, that was a bizarre uh, interview uh, because he actually wanted to be a DevOps engineer from school, which tells you how young he is. Uh, but he is seriously impressive. And uh, I don't know if you were able to check out that episode yet, but he, um, he was a full-time DevOps engineer at the age of like 16. Um, which is uh, pr- pretty mad, and he learned DevOps natively, uh, which I which I thought was really cool. So anyone who is you know maybe young and interested in career uh, uh, DevOps, then definitely Ethan's uh, after this one. Queue up Ethan's episode as well because uh, that's worth hearing. And in in a world we talked about in a world hypothetically where Sparse Global doesn't exist. Luckily, we live in a world where Sparse Global does exist. Um, so can can you say a bit more about uh, the program and? Um, what people can get out of it, and then why you're a little bit different to maybe like a bootcamp model, uh, because it's not really a bootcamp model, is it? It's a bit more involved than that. Yeah, it's a a good question. So, yeah, what we do at Sparta Global essentially is we've got some incredible uh, engineers and trainers working with us, and and what we've tried to do is across the entire software delivery lifecycle, every role within it, we've tried to distill the knowledge and the pain that a lot of us have faced. And so a lot of the things we've been talking about here today are, are distilled into courses. So you can come along and it, there is no expectation here. What we, what really drew me and the, the reason why I'm still at Sparta Global um, is the fact that it's the thing that I missed when I need, really needed it. I, if I would have known it was there, um, I would have totally changed my career a lot earlier on. Uh, but I had no idea, and it's still a relatively newish thing. But essentially, what you do is you turn up, you go through a talent journey. And there's no expectation. And the other positive thing, and why I love working, that you you don't need a degree to come here. Troops old don't even need A levels. What you need is the ability, the aptitude, and a passion just to learn. And if you can commit to that, if you can commit to that kind of working day of nine till five thirty of being a sponge and absorbing as much information and failing <laughs> on a daily basis and reading errors, um, you're going to be able to get through this course. So it's everything from 
data engineering to being a developer with restful microservices to DevOps engineering, as we've discussed, in all the way up to cybersecurity. Now, it's very hard, but coming off the back of that, what we do as a model is that you join us, you go through the training. We have a, an incredible group of clients and partners that work with us that you know, really love the the attitude that come from these individuals because it's a continual learning journey. And they join our clients for two years and they can then join our clients' perm. So it's a springboard into the tech industry, essentially, is what it is in its most simplistic terms. Mm. And so pe- people actually get, and um, the reason why it's so different is people actually get that hands-on experience working with an end client as well. So you learn those practical, uh, the literal everyday skills of actually working with a client. Oh, yeah. So there's approximately eight to 10 weeks of training um, and it is intensive. All of the things I've discussed about really getting involved and dealing with subnet gateways and Linux admin outputs and all, all sorts of packages. Yeah. And But the thing is, you get to join your client and we want you to join that client long term. Right? It's a career springboard. We want you to mm. start here in tech and grow. Um, and it's exciting. It's just nice. We've had some incredible stories uh, and change of careers as well. Uh, a seven year BA at a large bank was learning Java on the side and, and no one would take him on which was just insane because he's brilliant um joined us and is now you know senior and leading a career as a java developer and multiple other languages that he's learned on the way uh, we had a chef that joined us uh and to be fair starting as a chef it's long hours a week so when you start doing code coding work it's actually an easier day um but it was very hard very committed and he's now heading up uh a devops team for a company three years later after a change of career so it's it's amazing and they're the, they're, the, they're the stories that keep me there. And people shouldn't be afraid. You just got to be, it's going to be a hard slog. You got to be willing to commit. But anyone, if you really want to, can do this. I did. I did. And that's a miracle in itself. So, <laughs> Likewise for me, like it's a yeah. miracle in itself that I managed to get through. And um, that's the kind of uh, advice I like. To, uh, it's, it's a bit self-deprecating for me, but I like to dish that out on, on my TikTok in particular. Because um, I get a lot of people messaging me saying like, oh, you know, I tried it in college and I'm not sure it's 100% for me. And I say, look, if I can learn it, trust me, you can learn it. Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone says this, right? Everyone says the same. If I can do it, anyone can. And, you know, it's a, it's a regular self-deprecating thing from a lot of engineers. And the most important thing to realize is you will fail for the next 10 to 20 years regularly, every day. Things will fall over and crash. right? You could, and we've got to get out of this mindset where we, it's our kind of, not a we're all educated. We've all been educated to a standard, but we've not been taught to learn yet. So you come out thinking that the world is true or false or right or wrong. And then you get into work. And it is 58 different shades of grey. Uh, and, you know, and you have to kind of work your way through this. Well, is it right or is it wrong? Because that's how you're feeling all the time. But the fact of the matter is, does it work? And is it stable? It's pretty much as good as it's going to get. And you just keep improving on that over time. So take your time. You know, Teach yourself to learn and do not think this is a short journey. Your career is, you're going to be learning until the day you happily retire, hopefully. If you come in with that mindset, you're going to be absolutely fine. And fa- failure is is a is a positive. You just have to get used to framing it as a positive. And uh, if I was to give advice to someone maybe banging their head against the wall because I've been there, uh, I've been there so many times. Keep keep all that code on GitHub. I, I don't care if you think it's embarrassing. Like I, I have some awful code on my GitHub uh, from f- sort of five years ago now. Um, that you know sometimes I, I, I if I'm feeling like I doubt myself a bit, I go back and look at that code. Maybe this is about a bit self-deprecating, but um, it, it's it's the improvement that you're looking at. It's like wow, like I found writing this HTML form genuinely hard. 
And you know, now, now something could do with my eyes shut. Um, probably not literally, but uh, like, <laughs> um, you know, uh, definitely do that and and keep a brag document uh, is is a phrase I've heard recently. Keep a brag document of uh, uh, of what of what you've learned, and just make sure. And I, I'm sure you encourage this as Spartan, like make sure you keep notes on what you're learning because you can't just retain stuff if you're just hearing it or reading it. Yeah, that that's a that is a really good point, and I, I think you can get very quickly crushed by the amount of things that are out there. And the important thing is, is that you're not meant to know them all. <laughs> you're meant to be able to know enough about all of them to be able to read the documentation to do it the best way possible. That's pretty much it. Absolutely. And um, with, 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 yeah, uh, with, with the notes in general as well, um, something I'd add is uh, the more verbose you are, you think it's ridiculous, the better. Like I'm actually doing a bit of an experiment myself at the moment with a Kubernetes course I'm doing where I am writing out the most ridiculously verbose notes. Like for every like 10 seconds of the video course, I'm probably doing like 20 lines, (laughs) honestly, 20 lines of notes. Just need it. Yeah. (laughs) And it is really important, right? And it's interesting because agile would become a big thing when you start getting into tech and everyone will tell you about agile and the principles around it. It's not a methodology. Let's just be clear. It's just principles. Um, And the uh, working code over documentation is always the one that hits engineers first. Um, And then you start getting into the world of work and not saying any particular industry or area, but some areas would be, well, everything's in the code. And you kind of look at the code, you go, it really isn't. Um, and then you've got the other side of the fence where there's just an incredible amount of documentation. You realize, well, we actually we've not built much of it yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so finding that balance. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm definitely, one. I'm definitely, he- I, I, I can recognize myself. I'm very heavy on the documentation side, uh, like in, in, in terms of that, but that's maybe, maybe the business grad in me uh, gets a little bit too caught up in the, uh, we have to have explanations, we have to have processes. So I'm quite, I'm quite corporate for a dev. Uh, like that which is very which is very strange i think yeah, but that's lovely hearing that for you right because people are listening to this you know, you come from a business background that's gone into tech you're bringing new thought processes and skills to the situation i think this is the issue that's possibly been in play for the last let's just say five to ten years in the the same people have been coming forward to do development so it's actually been quite stifled by a, a mindset that has been inherent in the industry for a long time. Now we're getting this wonderful space where actually it's open to all and people are a little bit more willing to go in and learn and fail. And now we get diverse mindsets. Like I said, we've had a chef moving into DevOps, you know, that kind of control and process they have to deal with in a kitchen under high pressure, probably walking into an enterprise level place. That's pretty <laughs> easy, right? Yeah. I'm, exactly. shout, I'm getting shouted at by Gordon Ramsay, but here it's just a, a DevOps platform. It's fine. Yeah. yeah in, in, in code, firefighting is just a, a metaphor, whereas in the kitchen, it can be a real thing. <laughs> and um if people want to get in uh get in touch or like find out more about sparta global and the programs what what's the best way for them to do that yeah i look us up spartaglobal.com um and you know or reach out on linkedin um keep an eye on us on linkedin is, is, is a good place as well you can see a lot of the videos that we do and deliver and you can hear actual feedback from spartans as we refer to them as uh uh that have gone through that journey and are now consultants or permanent with our clients and it's, it's important to hear their journeys first don't take our word for it take theirs um, and that, because that's more important. That's what we drive ourselves on as, as a culture and a company is that you know, every in, every consultant that comes through and works with us is hopefully a future client. So that's how we view everyone coming in. Um, and then it, we've just got some fantastic partners with us. So yeah, spartaglobal.com, just get in touch with us on LinkedIn and feel free to reach out to me. Get, happy to get you in touch with our talent team. Uh, but just don't be afraid to start your journey. It's a, bit, it's a big jump, but 
you know, jump in the deep end. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Absolutely. Good philosophy. And um, I, is it only open to people in London or is it UK and further afield? Or... No, really good question. So obviously due to the pandemic, we very quickly um, transitioned online. And previously where there would be a lot of uh, engagement within a, in a classroom environment, uh, we're now delivering everything online. So absolutely anywhere across the UK, arguably globally, uh, we're completely mm. open. Um, and we're, you know, we're looking to get as many people on board as we can because we really want it. Do you know what? Just personally, and again, I, I'm quite passionate about where I work and I, I care and I, I wouldn't be in a place if it, uh, I didn't feel it was actually adding value. And it's the first time actually being very open, quite yeah, bearing my heart on my sleeve at this point. Um, it's nice to be working somewhere where you feel like you're actually making a difference. That's always a big thing, right? It's a, such a cliche. But having seen people go through that journey, now being able to scale that, it's a ridiculously exciting time to be part of it. So come and join, come and join us. Just this time to it's time to skill up, tech up. <laughs> Resounding endorsement there. So uh, yeah, that that sounds really good. I mean, I think that's kind of uh, I, I recognise I've borrowed you for quite a long time here from uh, from from your from your role of uh, providing the future of the of the tech economy to the UK. Um, was there anything else you wanted to like ask me about or, or talk about with Sparta? No, not directly. Um, it was, it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I really hope anyone listening, you know, goes back and, and listens to these previous podcasts as well. You know, there, there are clearly so many journeys that are going to add value to you and learn from others. You know, just absorb that knowledge. That's the, I think that's the last thing I'd leave. And yeah, hopefully I'd love to come back at some point. Absolutely. Welcome back anytime. And uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, not, not just on this podcast, listening to others, but just listening to others in general. The more you talk, the more you understand, like, uh, you know, listeners, me and Kieran here have shared so many uh, embarrassing stories and things we've messed up. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes just just a bit of that is, is a great way to build your self-confidence and, um, you know, have a laugh and, and network in the industry. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that deep, you know, uh, you can have a bit of, a bit of fun with it and, uh, make some money on the way and make some, uh, make some great connections. So it's, it's a wonderful industry to be a part of. If you haven't joined into the tech industry yet, uh, then, um, you know, it, I, I couldn't recommend it enough personally. And obviously now as well, you have a potential route, uh, to get in from, from this interview. So do check out Sparta Global, but yeah, for now, Kieran, I'd just like to thank you again so much for your time. Oh, no, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Great, it's been a blast. And uh, thank you as well, listener, for checking out another episode of The Code of Career. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday. Um, but until then, I hope you have a great week and happy coding.